Okay. Great. Um, Mike, thanks for taking the time to connect, man. This it's, is good. It's really good. It's good to see you, man. <laughs> um, my hope for the conversation today is uh, I get the benefit of chatting with you uh, far more often than other people at Vancouver or in San Jose. Um, and since a few of our churches are going through Hebrews and you guys went on a monster journey through it, um, I figured people would love to hear your voice in this season that we're not able to see each other in person as much as we would like. Um, and so, yeah, that's really my intent for the conversation. Well, that's great, man. I, I, uh, it's obviously a massive lamentation of the time that we're in that, you know, I can't be there the way that I would normally be normally seeing you multiple times a year and certainly seeing those faces in the Bay area. So I'm, I'm grateful for the time. And if this is, is uh, encouraging to them. I'll be, I'll be very grateful. And then you need to do these with them so that I can see them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll try to <laughs> try to make it happen, man. Yeah. Um, well, exactly. um, basically I, I kind of um, had a few questions. I'm like three or four chapters into Hebrews in terms of my personal study and kind of preparation. Um, I'm putting together the study guides for Vancouver and West Campbell um, and wanted to kind of talk through some of my initial questions, um, that I kind of have brewing, um, as I'm thinking about the book of Hebrews, I I've read through it, you know, the whole thing, I've read a lot of context, um, to it, um, and, um, have been super encouraged by it, um, in terms of the introduction of just the idea of the supremacy of Christ in the midst of external pressures and internal conflict. Um, and I'm particularly moved by, I think John MacArthur and Tim Mackey have both talked about um, the context of the, the people within the church, you know, how some are, you know, they've been believers for a while. And so maybe there's some stagnancy there um, in their faith. Um, there's a group of people who kind of intellectually agree with the ideas. And, you know, so maybe you might say they would, you know, say that they believe, and maybe they even tell themselves that they believe, but maybe their actions and their their life don't quite manifest that kind of surrender to Jesus. Yes. Um, and then I think there's even some people who are like, it seems like both Mackie and MacArthur identified people who are just kind of hanging around the church, like for one reason or another, not necessarily uh, believers yet um, or trusting Jesus, but just either enjoying the community or liking the the ritual of life together, um, but haven't made a commitment to follow Jesus. Um, and so it's just, it's interesting to think of that mix of people because I think we have that mix of people in our churches. Yes. Um, and I certainly can feel how those things have even been true of me at different points in my journey. So um, that's been pretty compelling. Um, how, how did your guys's church like respond to Hebrews in terms of just the different types of people that um, were in your church. And as they went through it, what kind of, what kind of happened amongst your people as they began to think about it together? Well, I think, um, you know, as you were talking about the context and the, and, and specifically the historical context of the letter, um, what's notable to me is that there was obviously a massive pull on these Jewish people to return to or to abandon Christ for what they were what they were used to in the Jew, in the Jewish religion and in, in Judaism. And that obviously has 
um, real relevancy to today in terms of all manner of philosophies and movements and things that would desire to um, pull us away from the Christian faith to um, getting us to to think in ways that would not be biblical about what's happening in the world um, and certainly to uh, lure us away from Jesus and the centrality of Jesus in Hebrews and his supremacy. The book in our, in, at least in terms of the way that I tackled it, really breaks up into three sections. The superiority of the person of Jesus is that first section that I know you're journeying through now. Uh, just his superiority to all other persons, um, both seen and unseen. In the first chapter, you have angelic beings. Um, and, and then obviously all throughout the book, you'll see this, but in that first section, this, this delineation of his superiority to other persons. And so uh, whether it be you know, political leaders or, you know, heroes, even of the faith, um, just making sure, and, and even with respect to chapter two in the, in that early admonition and warning, there's a number of warnings in Hebrews, not to drift away and to stay on course. Um, for our church, that was just deeply encouraging. It was good to fall in love with Jesus again, in some ways, to see who he is, the grandeur of who he is, his greatness, um, and obviously what he did, what he did, um, and the, and, and the superiority of his work, uh, for us. Um, but, uh, that, I think that that was a huge thrust for us to keep our eyes on Jesus and that issue of, of staying the course and this sort of a series of warnings throughout the book, I think, um, relate to your question in so far as the author's intention in making sure we keep our eyes on him. Um, and on, on his teaching. So I don't know if that answered your question entirely, Ryan, but that was a big, um, that was a big takeaway, I should say for our people. Cool. That's yeah. yeah, I think that, I mean, that definitely lines up with what I'm experiencing in the book myself as I'm starting to, to work through it. Um, there's a, just a desire to put Jesus more front and center in my, um, view and picture. Um, so, I mean, I, I even literally, I had an old, um, icon of Jesus as a small little square with, it has Jesus carrying a sheep. Um, okay. and I put it like on my desk in front of my, um, computer, like on a daily basis. Cause I was just like, I want to look at him more often, you know, if I can. So it was a good, good visual reminder of what's going on. Yeah. Um, kind of thinking I I'm, I'm jealous of you being done because as I'm getting into it and as I've read through it, um, you know, a lot of the imagery and story from the old Testament is daunting. Um, so we've been, you know, we took some time to watch a couple Bible project videos, um, that tell the story of the old Testament, um, that are introducing, you know, the themes of angels. Um, and I think we're going to continue to walk through probably the different, um, books of the Torah, um, just as it fits with, you know, he talks about Moses and the Exodus. He talks about Joshua um, and the conquest. Um, he talks about obviously Leviticus and the priestly order and the sacrifices. And so we're going to use those videos to sort of help us with our biblical imagery and imagination to remind us mm -hmm. um, we're not as indoctrinated with the stories maybe as the, the Jews were at that time. Um, yes how did you, how did you handle that imagery for yourself? And just to be able to put in context, these ideas that 
the author's building that we're not necessarily entirely familiar with? Well, so one of the things I noticed in your list, um, I wouldn't want you to leave this out because this was a really powerful piece of our study, which is chapter nine in the tabernacle. Mm. And, and there's, so one of the old sayings, and um, I think John MacArthur has said this, that, that sort of, um, you know, you, or I, I remember hearing it in Bible school for sure, but that you almost needed to be an expert in Leviticus to sort of understand Hebrews or something. Yeah. That's MacArthur for sure. Yeah. And in actuality, <clears throat> I would respectfully disagree with one of my, my heroes just to make that really clear for videoing this, um, that I actually think that Hebrews for certainly for the non-Jew explains Leviticus. In other words, it's, it's reversed in a lot of ways that, yeah. that I, I was so, enraptured during our study of Hebrews with the Old Testament because it explained the Old Testament or made sense of the Old Testament from the Christian perspective, from the, from the perspective cool. of someone who knows the Messiah and who he is. And, um, and, I, and because of that, Ryan, I did not shy away from um, at all dealing with the imagery because, um, you know, uh, one, of the, one of the themes or one of the ideas in Hebrews, it's really important to, to remember is he, that, that Hebrews points out that the Old Testament is, type, uh, is, a, is filled with, is a, is a record, a, you know, um, a massive record of types and shadows of Christ and the work that God was going to do in his son. And so, so they're basically everywhere. And, um, and using chapter nine as an example, um, you have the tabernacle, which I, I just did at that, at the time that we studied chapter nine, I literally handed out a illustration of the tabernacle just so that people had a grasp of like what that looked like. Yeah. And as an example, to enter the tabernacle, there's one door. Okay. Mm. Jesus describes himself as the door to come into the presence of God. You have the lampstand. Jesus is the light of the world. You have the bread, the, sh the show bread. Jesus is the bread of life. Everything points to him. And it is, it is. And then of course, if you get into the Holy of Holies out beyond the Holy place and the Holy of Holies where only one man could go, um, you have, you know, the Ark of the Covenant and you have the, you, you, you have the uh, Passover sacrifice and all of these kinds of things that are all pictures of Jesus and what he did. Um, you have even in the priestly ministry, his high priesthood on our behalf and he is the sacrifice. So it's just, it's an amazing journey of just looking at those things and being careful careful hermeneutically, Ryan, not to make more of things, you know, I mean, some yeah. people go crazy with that <laughs> stuff, but there are, there are really obvious things where Jesus describes himself and the scriptures describe Jesus in terms of the very things that the old Testament describe. And so I did the, a, a very similar thing. I read the Pentateuch. I, I actually, I believe happened to be reading the Pentateuch in my yearly Bible reading al alongside of when we started to go through the journey in Hebrews and nice. just to see those things in parallel and to have the, have the new Testament and the writer of the Hebrews explaining in grand detail, what I was reading in the old Testament, this is what all this means and what it was meant to point to in the, in the minds and hearts of the Jewish people thousands of years ago. 
Yeah. It was just such an enriching, is such an enriching thing in terms of tying all of the scripture together, um, making sense of some of this stuff that feels daunting when you're reading it in Leviticus or when you're reading these, these stories, what does all this ritual mean? What is it, what does it have to do with anything for me? And the reality is, is God has been telling one story and it all points to the redemption that he was going to accomplish in his son. And, um, and all of those things were types and shadows of what was to come in Jesus. So the, I, we, we were, uh, it was significant insofar as in Christ, we see the meaning of those things. And yeah. it's so, it's very enriching. Like I, we, I knew we were going to talk about some of this and I just went back to some of my notes and I was, I'm missing <laughs> Hebrews now. I, I miss yeah. having started that. It was an incredible journey. Yeah. If I would, if I could just summarize at least the encouragement that I'm hearing from what you're saying is that if the OT imagery is daunting for us, Hebrews actually is one of the best ways to understand it is to work through yes. it and hear it from the author's perspective because he has the benefit of being on this side of the resurrection. So um, yep. if you're ever going to understand the old Testament, this is a good chance to do it. I'm um, working that's backwards. Great, that's a great summation of what I'm saying. Yeah. I, cool. I would like, if I was going to take my kids, if I wanted my kids to have a primer in the old Testament, Hebrews is a perfect place to start because it's, it's going to reveal, it gives them the, the, the answers ahead of having read it. Like this nice. is what all the, you know, so it's and and, it's just so wonderful that that's, that all of that is in the savior, like that that's who Jesus is. It's really uh, the mastery of God in setting all these things up in this beautifully sort of poetic and, and incredible way that are all of which are fulfilled in his son. You know, it's just really unbelievable. Nice. That's good, man. Um, yeah. The next thing I wanted to look at is, you know, we're just starting. So we, we've got this basic introduction from Hebrews 1. Um, that says, uh, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Um, and you can, like, I'm thinking about author's intent in my mind, like that is a pretty loaded first three verses. Um, and I, I, I think I laughed with a a few friends about, I think MacArthur spent like four or five weeks going over these three verses. Um, and I think, uh, I've seen a couple other people spend a lot of time on them. Um, and (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and so you can, you can like feel that they're packed. Um, but I also feel like, you know, with your perspective, having been through the whole book, you have a better sense of like what is behind each one of those things in terms of what the author is introducing. Um, so I was wondering, you know, how would you express in your own words, you know, what the author is introducing in those verses and kind of the major message of the book that we're getting a glimpse of as we get started with those verses? Yeah, I think we we've already tipped our hand to it, right? It is that <laughs> author is immediately introducing the superiority of Jesus and the supremacy of of Christ, and and that to a Jewish reader as well, Ryan, who would have revered the prophets and the Old Testament, and that in immediate statement that though he has spoken to the fathers in the prophets, 
in many, many, many portions and in many ways in these last days he's spoken to us in his son. In other words, he's making a statement that whatever you've heard from the prophets, however good that is, you have in Jesus the ultimate or sort of um, definitive communication of God to us in Jesus. And this is, and so everything else is, is subservient to that. The, the prophets are speaking about Jesus. God has now given us Jesus as his final declaration or his ultimate declaration, I should say. And this, it's, an, it's a masterful way. And then to describe him in these terms, right? That he is, he is the heir of all things, that he is, he is the creator of the world that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. These kinds of <laughs> the exact representation, the effulgence, the outshining of the glory of God, the, the radiance of his, of his glory, these kinds of things. It is a, it is, you don't get any clearer in terms of what the author's intending to communicate to us about this person. Yeah. And then he spends the next four chapters just talking about or demonstrating the superiority of that person to all of these venerated people, both angelic beings, beings that we can't see who are um, clearly described as powerful creatures, um, all as well as, of course, the, 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 the fathers of the Jewish people. So it's, it's a really, um, I, I love this. I am in that camp. I spent, I think I preached three weeks on those three verses, something <laughs> like that. So um, I'm guilty of that, but, I, but moving past that too fast, I just feel like is a disservice to at least this lovely introduction of who Jesus is and the, the grandeur of him, you know, yeah. and he caps it, um, you know, the, with at the end of verse three, that this one is the one who made purification for sins, which again, to the Jewish mind, this is not, and, and, and there's a, there's a, there's an interesting, um, what you, what you begin to realize when you study, when you start looking at the Old Testament sacrifice and that the Jewish religious service, the futility of that, I remember um, wrestling with the idea that I have to constantly be making sacrifice for my sins all the time, week after week, because it is simply a symbol made in faith in someone who was still to come, but that had to be constantly redemonstrated, um, and the futility of that, and then to to be being told from this author, there's this one, the definitive communication of God to us, this Messiah, who is the one who made purification for sins once for all, which we'll learn. You, he obviously yeah. uh, un unpacks all of that later in the book, but to see that to to that mind but even to the non-jew for me obviously not having gone through or having had to deal with a lifetime of that kind of service religious service to think man he made purification for sins like i don't have to be made pure and when you start looking at the priestly ministry his eternal intercessory ministry for us as a high priest forever who is yeah. forever making inter intercession for us in the tabernacle Tabernacle not made with hands. I mean, you get into chapter 10 and you in the imagery of Christ's eternal ministry that he is in a tabernacle now 
that we don't see that is the true tabernacle, that the tabernacle here on earth was simply a picture of, that he is there operating as a priest on our behalf, as, as the purific, as the sacrifice for sins, is such an unbelievable idea. Um, so anyway, I don't mean to get carried away no, because it's, it's exciting, but it's, it's just it's overwhelming. I, like, it's incredible. I feel the same way about reading the the collection of ideas is I guess what struck me was I can get how um, saying that he's the heir of all things like we understand wealth and power. And so that sounds grand and big. And then he says he's the creator of the universe. And it's like, I mean, we, we understand in whatever finite way we can what that means, how big and powerful and grand and good. Right that is. And then the third thing is the purification of sins. And I realized that for, in my own experience, like I don't have that on the same level as heir of all things and the creator of the universe. And so I think that that's one of the things I'm anticipating as we get deeper into the book is to raise up, you know, that aspect of who Jesus is, because I, I almost immediately recognize like, man, I'm not, I'm not, I don't think that that's that big of a deal right now, you know? And I, and I wonder what that means for my, you know, obviously God shaped the Jewish mind to be focused on purification of sins and to have that labor of, of daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, um, offering sacrifices, um, for the purification of sins. He wanted people to be formed in such a way that they knew their dependence upon him for forgiveness and for atonement. Um, and I don't, I don't have those same practices to, to kind of promote that in my life. So I'm, I'm intrigued to get deeper into it and, and maybe raise that up a little bit. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. yeah good. I, I, I've been, I was so intrigued by also Ryan, the reality that because of sin, uh, I mean, you'll have to deal with this, but that the, the shedding of blood is necessary, that this is the God we serve and that, um, and that he is perfectly holy and there is no way around that. And that he made a way, man, for, you know, whatever, whatever the sacrifice of animals and all of the, the countless gallons of blood that were shed through the, through animals over, over years, um, over the millennia that, that in Jesus, the blood has finally been shed once for all for our purification and, and that we needed that. And now we have him as our intercessor and our great high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, which is another interesting thing. You'll get into chapter seven, I believe. <laughs> and it's just so. Dude, there's some good, there's some doozies. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, it's really, I, I would have to say, I think Hebrews is probably my favorite book just because it's taking something that's so massive in terms of the whole first half of the Bible and, and, and bringing it to this focal point of Jesus Christ and making it understandable for a simpleton like me, truly. And it just is, and to, to know that that is the Savior who knows me and loves me, that this is this great person who is who all of this, of these thousands of years of history and religious tradition we're pointing to. And that, that is my savior. That is a, and, and I think you would reference that he's our brother, like that he was made like us. Like, it's just, I just, um, and I remember being constantly struck with, we're never going to really, that the general, the genuine sense that there are things you have the feeling there's so much that we'll never understand this side of eternity. Yeah. 
but you can feel it's all there. There's so yeah. much to Jesus that's there that we'll just go, oh, we'll just be so floored when we finally grasp it at a deeper level when we see him, you know? So right. anyway. Cool. I, I want to talk a little bit about the imagery about um, the angels um, and what, as you're reading that first and second chapter, you know, clearly the author is saying Jesus is superior to angels. There's something essential about who he is that he wants us to understand in comparison to angels. But again, I'm not a Jew, so I don't have a temple with like um, angelic beings carved into um, pillars and, um, you know, on top of uh, altars and those kinds of things to constantly put in front of myself, you know, this sense of God's messengers mediating to us um, life and truth and direction. Um, And I didn't, you know, I don't have... I don't think of the Bible as being brought to us by angels, whereas they, you know, have a sense that angels helped mediate the Torah to yeah. Moses and have, so they have this, all this context and the author saying, Hey, you know how you revere and think about angels a lot. Um, Jesus is greater than that. And yeah. I just, and I'm like, well, I don't think about angels a lot. And um, so I wonder how for you, what was essential about Jesus um, in that comparison to angels, what did you take away from, from that section of the book? Well, I, the first thing that comes to mind, Ryan, is I I'm struck by, uh, in, uh, by chapter two, verses one through four, the, the idea that those things that were spoken by angels that were unalterable, um, if, if, if there was, if there was just punishment and judgment meted out for disobedience to those things, um, how much more can we will, will we be in trouble if we're if we're ignoring or disobeying those things that were spoken by the Savior because He is superior to them? Um, and so I remember being I, I I'm like you I didn't I I haven't spent a ton of time on angelology you know and <laughs> and, sort of, um, and and sort of looking at that although in studying Hebrews one I was. I, I, for whatever reason, it had never occurred to me in Bible school or any other time that, in fact, angels were involved in transmitting message the message to Moses. Um, I had never really looked at that before um, yeah. as, as part of that mediation, and um, and that uh, uh, and that they were they're just probably more actively involved in my life or in life than I realize you get to the end of chapter one. And he says that they're ministering spirits, that they're out there doing God's bidding in the world in ways that we, we obviously don't see and may perceive, or maybe not, I don't know. But what I, what I don't ever want to do is be distracted by them relative to my devotion to the savior, who is the one mediator between God and man. So I think for the Jewish people, and like you said, if we had imagery, you know, I would tell you just personally, I tend toward, I like imagery and ceremony and these kinds of things. And I can relate to the, um, the pull toward what would probably become idolatry or ritual over devotion to the Lord, you know, meaning that I would begin to, to imbue that with an importance that, that is, is inappropriate or, that, that I feel like is somehow serving or, or, or offering grace to me or conveying grace to me over a devotion to our great high priest, the Lord Jesus, you know, and his word. So 
Um, I didn't spend a ton of time. We didn't do any particular study on angels beyond what the text tells us about them, what the text tells us about the surety of their word as they spoke for God at points. And yet, despite all of that, the superiority of Jesus to them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I want to read those first few verses uh, of chapter two that you alluded to. Um, it says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or obedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Um, I, I guess I, I saw this as a key introduction to the rest of the warnings of the book um, that all of the rest of the ones were maybe more specific to a certain group of people that might have a certain tendency, but this was sort of the general warning of lest we drift away from Christ. Um, I'd love to hear you just kind of unpack that warning um, in your own words, based on what you've read in the rest of the book and how much that idea develops, you know, as you go along. Yeah. What I would say is uh, that I, I remember being, I, I would say that I am, uh, first of all, it's, and we don't talk in these terms generally at our churches, but I am sort of deeply reformed in terms of it, my soteriology and my sense of eternal security and those kinds of things. Um, but I, I also know that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and that there is a, there are periods of doubt and there are periods of, of time when, you know, we're captivated or, or, you know, lured by different kinds of thinking and, and philosophies of men and things that bring us comfort that are outside of what the scriptures teach us and things like that. And so I, I remember being a little bit confounded. I don't believe that believers can be, you know, led away unto sort of damnation from, from, you know, from, uh, in, in terms of the, the gospel message. But I do think for believers, it's an apt warning, right? The idea, you know, it's interesting in that language. I remember being so um, excited about it. The, the, the idea of drifting away and staying anchored or rooted in the truth. There's an idea in those verses. I'd have to go back and look at my notes for specifics, but there's an idea of in those verses of bringing the ship of truth into port. Yes, that and and that picture, that imagery of staying the course as a as a follower of Christ, the 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 truth of the Scripture and of Jesus, we have it, and we're riding this ship, this gospel ship, and we are to stay on course on that ship and bring it all the way home, and that uh, what I was what I was compelled by, and what I challenged our people around was, he is saying you've got to give close and um and diligent attention to staying on course in the in the journey of life relative to God's truth and to and to, and to walk your walk with Jesus and that anything other than diligence and this was the thing that was captivating to me um complacency if you're complacent you will drift so if you're if you're on a river and you're not rowing or if you don't have your sails up, you will go where the currents take you. It's not, yeah. it, 
So short of your work to pay close attention to the gospel, to pay close attention to your holiness, to your walk with Lord, the Lord Jesus, anything other than that is, is guaranteed to cause you to drift away. And the drift is interesting as we talked about it as a church. Um, drift is a nice, pleasant <laughs> sort of slow, just yeah. moving away. We're not talking about a, I don't believe this anymore. We're talking about a gentle current that slowly moves us away from the truth of the gospel and from the savior. And this is, and this is the danger, especially in our culture. Um, you know, I'm looking at Romans again. Uh, we're, we just started, I'm two weeks into it. And in setting all of the context uh, for the book and Paul's writing to them, um, one of the things I was looking at is the cultural context, of course, in Rome at the time. And, and just like now, I'm, I'm struck by the sort of parallels to our current situation where um, I was reading a, 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 an 18th century preacher by the name of Robert Haldane on Romans. And he was talking about, um, about the context of the day, which was flooded with or filled with either stoic or, um, or platonic philosophy and that men were excited by the ideas because they're searching for, for something, for something real, which I argue most, almost all human beings are looking for, for God ultimately or meaning and purpose and that sort of thing. But that those philosophies could not satisfy the, the passions they excited in people. Yeah. And so the culture was right for the gospel when, when Paul wrote Romans. And I would say that I, I, I raise that or I bring that up simply because we live in a time where everyone's excited by all manner of ideas about what the problem is, about what the solution is, about how we need to be, about what makes us righteous, all of these things. And yet what the writer of the Hebrews is saying is, steer the ship of truth into port. Do not get off course and be diligent about this or you will drift. Pay close attention, he says. And and so I just was so compelled by that challenge. Um, and, And frankly, the call to repentance to those in our midst who don't know Jesus Um, you know, it's a, it's a funny, it's a funny thing. I, I, I've realized in the last couple of years, especially in preaching the scriptures on Sundays that, um, you are putting your people under judgment once you give them the truth, because once they know they don't have an excuse and, and that goes for me too, of course, once I know I don't have an excuse anymore. And when you read a text like this, if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? This is a terrible rhetorical question. The writer is saying you can't escape. Once you know this, the message of this Jesus, that he is the way to salvation, that he is superior, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, there is no escaping if you neglect that. And um, and it is after you study chapter one and you get this introduction to who Jesus is, the, the majesty of who he is and what he did, at least in general terms, you realize it is the ultimate insult to the creator of the universe to neglect him once you know who he is. So here I'm telling you about this person. How will you escape if you neglect this? 
if you yeah. neglect this person, this salvation that is offered in this person, there is no escape from that. So I, I, it was a, uh, I'm, I'm being long winded in my answer, but this was those verses. I think I spent two or two weeks, maybe, or three <laughs> weeks on those verses because it's a, uh, um, there's just such richness in exploring those ideas, even, yeah. you know, even just imagery of the ship and the idea oh, of man. drift and, and then looking throughout the book, Ryan, there's, I think, three or four warnings like this, and they escalate as the book goes. Yeah. So this is the first of them, and they kind of ratchet up in intensity as, as you go through the study or through the, through the letter. Yeah, the, the imagery of the ship was really compelling. I think even as I'm listening to you now, I'm, I'm thinking about how there's a difference. Like, since I don't sail on the ocean, like, yeah. I think of drifting down a river, and that seems pretty, like... Uh, amiable like i'm gonna end up where i was headed because the river's hemmed in but i'm i'm remembering stories of like sailors who they have a compass and a map to direct them where to go but they lose their bearings um because the stars are covered because they're desperate for water or food or whatever and they like think like there must be land right over here and so i i've heard stories of them going off track because of their desires essentially you know to try to find something that's closer that's a little easier that you know offers them relief you know on the long journey and yet they've got to trust the compass they've got to trust the map and head in the direction of the port where they're headed otherwise they could be utterly lost and so um i guess i i took that very much as like jesus is our compass you know pointing us in the right direction and we've got We've got to follow him. Um, that leads me to my last question for this yes. time. And I hope that we get to do this again, at least a couple more times as we go through the book. Um, but sure. the last one, you alluded to it before about the encouragement that we have, the author offers right after this about Jesus being, you know, our older brother, essentially in the, the elder brother to the first of the new humanity that he knows the way um, he's the first one to live it out um, in the fullness um, of that new life. And so, just wondered if you could end on sort of uh, what encouragement you guys took away from that picture of Jesus as our uh, picture of the new humanity, our older brother that we can follow um, that we're supposed to stay close to. Yeah, I, I was, I mean, first of all, the, the writer tells us why he took on flesh, which is, that he can't, he took on a body and was made like us so he could die, which is a, a remarkable idea in itself. And I guess that's causal and not exactly what you're asking, except that, um, it, that except for the idea, I, I would, I would refer to uh, chapter two, verse 10, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Yeah. And um, what's so incredible about that idea is um, perfect. There is not inferring a deficiency in Jesus, but a preparation or a completion of him for the, um, for the task that was given to him, which was pure and simple. He was given a, he came as a man to die and um, that, uh, and that he needed to be like us to do that so that he was a fitting high priest for us and a fitting sacrifice for us, that he was truly one of us. And I, I think for me, Ryan, um, 
I mean, there's about 30 different directions I could go, but if I was just sharing my heart in terms of the way that that, or, or the, the way that that moves me, which maybe isn't as important as what the truth is of it, but there's truth in it. Um, and that is that, um, that God himself um, came. I, I, I was struck by the idea that God had theoretical knowledge about, about what it was like to suffer as a person. And then he actually came and did it. Yeah. And that he knows what it's like to be us. And that is that, that the Lord has true empathy for us because he did this and, and, and did it willingly and then did it to death for us. Yeah. Um, that is a, that there isn't anything more moving or should, shouldn't be anything more moving or compelling to us than that. Um, and that that he he that he submitted himself to the father in that is such a remarkable there's i mean there are like i said there's example in that relative to our lives there yeah. is um encouragement and sort of um it should bring us to our knees in our worship and love for the lord in terms of what he did for us um and that he goes ahead of us as an older brother as a and, and even that we could call him that because he's he calls us brethren you know that that is such a, an overwhelming thing that the God of the universe who upholds all things by the word of his power, who is the radiance of the glory of God, says, I'm not ashamed to call them my brothers. I was like them. I know what it's like to live and to deal with the sufferings that they deal with. And I did it willingly because I love them and I died for them. And yeah. I came to do it so that I could die for them and make purification of their sins. It's yeah. really, um, like I said, I miss the study. I'm jealous now that you guys are a few years behind me. <laughs> and and going through Hebrews again because I would gladly teach it over again. It was an incredible uh, cool. journey in looking at this year. Cool, man. Well, we definitely want to continue to pick your brain and your heart as we go through it. And so, um, thanks for taking some time to walk through the the start of the book and at least some of the initial questions that are kind of cropping up for us. Um, and I think it'll be a good encouragement to people. So please uh, please greet the church in Des Moines and tell them to be praying for us because we're going on that journey that you guys have already gone on. And uh, we'll certainly continue to pray for you guys as you're beginning Romans and uh, navigating yeah. uh, the world that's ahead of us, man. It's a pretty interesting time to be alive. It, it really is, man. It's a pleasure, Ryan. I, there's nothing more encouraging than talking about the scriptures and the things that matter. So um, I would convey the same greetings to the church of Vancouver and certainly the Bay area churches. If they get a hold of this, I, I love you all and, and miss you all. Great. Thanks, man. Thanks for your time. All right. Brother.